Thank you, Mark, very much. I'm not merely thanking today's chairman, but also a former tutorial pupil, which is a great uh, pleasure, and uh, the boy hasn't done bad, has he? Um, I have been asked to give a general introduction uh, to what is clearly the most controversial and confrontational budget we have had, which made a most enormous impact nationally and internationally. One of the most powerful evocations of the budget I know of is in the autobiography of famous American liberal editor William Allen White, who observed a land and budget league campaign, uh, a march, campaign march in London, a huge parade which reduced uh, White and his wife to tears. We felt we were part of something great and beautiful. The underdog had slipped off his leech, leash, and this was the time to howl. Revolution, said White, was in the air. The actual budget speak, as you probably know, 29th of April, 1909, was not a success. It was far too long one thing, but otherwise it was very much a personal triumph for Lloyd George. He paid, I'm afraid, very little heed to uh, what he was told by the Treasury, who he thought were uh, effete and patronizing in the main. I'm sure there are not such people in the Treasury uh, now. He largely ignored uh, the permanent secretary, uh, Sir George Murray, whom he regarded as uh, third class, uh, a view, I may say, shared by his school's examiners in Oxford. Uh, he tended to bypass official papers. He worked much more with Robert Chalmers, the head of the Inland uh, Revenue, who was very strongly liberal, and also on technical taxation matters with John Bradbury, who later worked with him at the start of the war, inventing the eponymous banknotes, of course. Uh, uh, it was very much Lloyd George's own idea, driven through the cabinet in the face of a great deal of criticism. There were a group of fairly right-wing cabinet ministers, Runciman, McKenna, Lulu Harcourt, uh, constantly critical about aspects of Lloyd George's taxation plans. He had support only from a minority, uh, very much so from Winston Churchill, although Churchill, born in Blenheim Palace, wasn't perhaps too keen on land taxes, but Churchill gave him pretty strong uh, support. Haldane, a supporter, and very decisively Asquith, the Prime Minister, who supported Lloyd George and summed up in his favour time and again. Uh, Lloyd George handled the bill very well in committee, a very, very long committee stage that dragged on uh, to November. It was vote after vote in which Lloyd George took part. It was very much a personal show. There are not many other ministers intervening to shoulder the burden uh, with Lloyd George in committee. And in the end, as you know, the House of Lords rejected it. Lloyd George had not planned for this, uh, but uh, I think he rejoiced by then in the fact that they had finally done something so incredibly foolish and provoked a confrontation. It led, as you know, to a great uh, campaign in the country by the Budget League to two narrow election 
victories, the passage of the 1911 Parliament Act, uh, very much the uh, high point of Lloyd George's pre-war career, followed shortly afterwards by another great triumph, uh, the passage of national insurance. So it marked Lloyd George out as the dominant figure of the time, the indispensable figure in the government linking the old liberalism and the new. And his irreplaceability was confirmed the next year, 1912, when the minor peccadilloes of the Marconi case, uh, when uh, Asquith and his colleagues simply said, we cannot let Lloyd George go, we cannot govern without him. His background in finance, LG, was very limited wasn't unique amongst politicians. They were not trained in economics, uh, particularly at that uh, period. It was said later on by one of his secretaries that Lloyd George saw figures from a buoyant and romantic angle. He spoke very little about finance in the 1906 uh, election when his ideas were pretty conventional, I think, at that stage. Uh, but he did develop uh, a growing interest in financial matters when he became president of the Board of Trade, where he served until April 1908 when he became chancellor. It's a very important time in Lloyd George's career and still, I think, worth a good deal of scholarly attention. He worked closely with business on measures like the Patents Act. He worked very closely with the trade unions. One of the people he came across when at the Board of Trade is a man called George Pache, became a famous writer on um, uh, statistical matters and on trade matters, very strongly liberal, and he was to work with Lloyd George really after the budget. Uh, I think their collaboration began seriously uh, in the summer of 1909. Pache was a very optimistic man. He believed in overseas investment. He believed in trade. He believed that the economy was going well. So he was just the kind of chap that Lloyd George liked to discuss matters with. And he certainly boosted Lloyd George's self-confidence, uh, never a particularly a feeble attribute, uh, boosted his self-confidence uh, considerably. Page worked as an official advisor, I may say, with Lloyd George at the start of the war, dealing with a crisis in the currency then. And uh, um, it is uh, interesting, I think, the way that Page, so to speak, fed uh, ideas into the uh, directions that Lloyd George's uh, uh, thoughts wanted to follow. But it is extraordinary display, I think, of self-confidence from someone who had no background in finance but proved himself uh, to be a, a master of his craft, at least as a, as a politician dealing in finance. It was a highly political exercise. We're talking about the most political chancellor perhaps there ever has been, and that's saying something. He was not... Uh, uh, afraid of, uh, at every stage, drawing in the political implications. He was not desk-bound. He spent a great deal of time up and about, particularly being up and about on Walton Heath Golf Course. Golf Course was a great arena, as you probably know, for the Edwardians of, uh, uh, for discussing political matters, and he discussed matters there with journalists uh, like uh, Riddell, the owner of the News of the World, and 
Robert Donald, uh, people like that. Uh, there was a great interrelationship between Lloyd George's conversations and what subsequently appeared. You could, as it were, call it spin. Uh, the other major political aid for him, I think, was actually not his financial secretary, Hobhouse, who was a very traditional figure, but C.F.G. Masterman, uh, who, whose son is actually still alive, dear Neville, born in 1912. I shared a room with him, and I went to Swansea, and he's still alive, must be an old work it out, 97, uh, and uh, I still receive letters from him telling me where the Labour Party is going wrong. And uh, uh, Masterman Senior, CFG, a very important political aide for Lloyd George, marrying expertise in land taxes with a social uh, conscience. It's very interesting that Masterman's boss, he worked actually as a junior minister of the local government board. He wasn't in the Treasury. His boss was John Burns, who was a bitter enemy of Lloyd George. So it's a very interesting political configuration that Burns, a junior minister, was uh, perhaps Lloyd George's most important aide. A very political exercise. Lloyd George, throughout acting as the voice of social reform, the ideas on social reform that had perhaps begun with Asquith's uh, budget of 1907, which is a pretty radical one. Commitment to social reform, commitment also to national development, the kind of themes that Lloyd George had picked up at the Board of Trade, the need to regenerate transport, the need to deal with employment, the need to deal with agriculture, hence the development fund that was created in the budget. And how would it be paid for? It would be paid for by what Lloyd George called democratic finance. By implication, we hadn't had too much of that prior to LG. He was swayed, I think, then, as always throughout his career, by major political ideas. He distinguished, as other liberals did, between the productive and non-productive groups in society. Amongst the non-productive, uh, no prizes for guessing, landowners uh, who were regarded very widely by liberals like Lloyd George as uncreative, not to say parasitical. Hence the importance of land reform, hence the importance of land taxes which should be paid for by the landowners who drew the profit, not by the occupiers. Uh, Lloyd George's views on the land had always been very radical. Uh, two of his earliest mentors in politics in, in Wales had been very, very strong r land reformers, not to say land nationalizers. A man called Michael Daniel Jones, a famous independent minister who hated landowners in Wales so much she wanted to transport plant a lot of Welshmen as far away from them as possible and he put some in Patagonia where as a matter of fact they still are. For example places in Patagonia called for example Puerto Madryn are named after uh, Welsh, uh, Welsh uh, towns. Uh, another man with a wonderful name of Pan Jones, editor of a um, newspaper called The Celt 
Uh, he was a land nationalizer here. The Celts propounded what I think would be recognized as pure socialism at the time, and he was an influence on LG. So there was that theme. Lloyd George had grown up regarding uh, landowners as parasitical and socially objectionable. Land taxes were therefore uh, socially progressive as well as he believed financially productive. Land taxes were a function of civic democracy. And in the context of the day, they were a vindication of free trade. The tariff reformers said the foreigner would pay for social reform, to which Lloyd George replied the rich would pay, and there were plenty of them in Edwardian England. The background is... I think quite well known to the budget. Firstly, I, I won't elaborate this, I think it's very well known, there was a big financial deficit, £16 million, doesn't sound much now, but it was a terrifying figure in those days, uh, and this had to be met by new taxes. The biggest item was old age pensions. Uh, they had been set up, I, I may say, with the most appall in the most appallingly incompetent way by Asquith, who hugely underestimated the cost of old age pensions. And also it emerged, and uh, perhaps Professor Jackson will tell us about this, there seem to be a lot of pensioners in Ireland. Uh, they sort of pop out of the hedgerows. There are many more pensioners in Ireland than people had calculated. And that, plus the dreadnought battleships, plus already a deficit in the finances, meant that something had to be done financially. Rather more technical thing, secondly, there was a problem of local government finance. And Lloyd George mentions this in the budget. Uh, there were pressures uh, on local authorities, arguments about the rise in the rate in uh, major cities, discussions of new uh, strategy uh, such as site value rating, the rating of site values uh, in uh, um, municipalities. And this was uh, an ongoing theme, including in the budget. One particular personal and political thing was that the uh, issue was that uh, the issue of local authority finance, of course, fell under the local government board. Uh, which was in the hold, you might say, the stranglehold of John Burns. And there was a good deal of effort necessary, it was felt by Lloyd George, to extract this theme from the local government board control. And this actually continues, and a, a central issue in the, on the whole, unsuccessful budget of 1914 uh, was rate support grants for hard-pressed local authorities. And, of course, there was thirdly a political background factor. The need, of course, for the Liberals to fight back. They'd been doing badly. They'd been humiliated by the unelected House of Lords on issue after issue. They had done badly in by-elections, culminating in the defeat of Winston Churchill in, in, in Manchester. The élan, the momentum of 1906, uh, appeared to have gone, and it had to be recaptured. And in the view of Lloyd George, recaptured by bold means. As someone once said, I forget who it was, we are at our best when we are boldest. 
wider strategic issue too. Fear of labour. The Liberals were capitalists. They did not want socialism. They were afraid of what had happened to Liberals on the continent. Lloyd George mentioned this many times. Afraid of labour and uh, therefore a good deal of effort made by Lloyd George to appeal to labour uh, during the budget controversy. The Liberals, he says, are the party of cheap food of full employment. And he made a number of observations or at least rhetorical concessions when he talked about land valuation uh, to uh, labour views on the uh, evils of rent and the need to tax rent. Fear of the unionists, I'm sure Professor Trentman will discuss this, but there was tariff reform, the need for a free trade budget. The unionists were fighting back. Tariff reform had seemed a popular creed, particularly in 1907 when there's rising unemployment. Things were better at the time of the budget, actually. But clearly, uh, the unionist threat uh, politically and the tariff reform threat was something with which Lloyd George had to deal. I think it's also a very personal thing to, to keep up radical momentum. Lloyd George had a very, very important visit to Germany August, September 1908. It's very interesting to me, the student of Lloyd George's career, to try to contrast uh, his visit to Germany in 1908 with a rather different visit to Germany in 1936 when he met Hitler. And in a way, these are kind of parameters of his career, I think. Uh, he was very interested in uh, social legislation in Germany and insurance, invalidity pensions, very interested also in taxation. He heard about the Frankfurt tax, where in that city there was a tax on the unearned increment uh, of land. He came back, fired with enthusiasm, and spent much of his time in the winter talking with socially radical liberals, uh, Masterman, uh, Rufus Isaacs, and also I think one should include certainly Winston Churchill at this period, backed up by a good deal of PR afterwards. It was all very, very public, all very, very political. Uh, once Lloyd George came back from Germany, stories began mysteriously to multiply in the press that something pretty special was coming up, something pretty radical would have to be done, and this was the background of the budget. My colleagues, uh, I take it, will be talking in detail about the contents of the budget, but just to itemize them, land taxes. It was recognized that land taxes uh, would not probably be very productive in the short or the medium term, uh, particularly the tax on the unearned increment is a 20% tax in uh, the budget of 1909. There were huge problems about the valuation of land, which in many ways was the key, I think, to the whole argument, how you valued land, how, for example, you would distinguish between land set aside for agriculture and other uh, kinds uh, of land. And what happened was there were all sorts of difficulties a landowner's body called the Land Union 
challenged uh, the taxes and the courts uh, repeatedly. But the important thing in Lloyd George's view was that you had land valuation set down in statute. It was there in the budget, in a finance bill, that there would be a valuation of the land as it stood actually back on, uh, I think, April the 30th, 1909. So it could be a retrospective valuation. Lloyd George is very anxious to flag this up to indicate that this was going to be a big source of revenue for the Liberals. And he rather encouraged uh, his colleagues, in a way I cannot believe the chancellors do now, uh, by encouraging them, really, to spend as much as possible. Um, he, uh, there were various ministers who submitted their estimates for the following year in the spring of uh, 1909, and Lloyd George was saying, in effect, well, you know, you can do better than this. This isn't big enough. Uh, you know, we, we're, we're going to have the land taxes, and we absolutely have to spell out the essential necessity for them. So much a land tax, direct taxes, big uh, uh, increases in income tax and in super tax built on the redistributive and differentiated aspects of Asquith's budget of 1907. And these were actually far, far more successful part of the budget. It gave Lloyd George and colleagues an opportunity to discriminate, to contrast parasitical landowners and license owners in public houses with the industrial classes of capital and of labor. It was all very carefully worked out. They had a fairly good idea of who voted liberal, and you will find that uh, the existing rates of taxes were broadly held down on incomes below uh, three thousand pounds, and uh, it was really some way above that when super tax, in particular, began to bite. But it was a, a major. There's one other factor which is uh, interesting: family or children's allowances were developed for the first time in 1909, and there was an allowance. Uh, for people um, earning under, I think, £500 to have an allowance. It was uh, a principle that became uh, permanent. It was doubled. The allowance was doubled in Lloyd George's budget of 1914. Uh, Clearly, then, uh, a person uh, with uh, children uh, who earned not an enormous amount uh, was, on balance, going to benefit from the budget. For the working class... The impact, I believe, was fairly neutral, although people didn't like taxes on tobacco or taxes on beer, which it was thought was attacking two of the basic pleasures of the working man. Then there were other kinds of taxes, much higher death duties, much higher stamp duties, higher excise duties on tobacco, as I've said, spirits and licenses, all very successful, not all popular, not least in Ireland, who didn't like duties on things like whiskey and other basic uh, commodities. Also a novelty, the first road fund, the first petrol duty, quite a big one, I think, but it's uh, three pence a gallon. 
for uh, road uh, for motorists. And the idea, of course, being that this tax would be hypothecated and devoted to the improvement of roads, or we know what happened to that. But it all added up to a swinging array of taxes and punch depicted Lloyd George as John Knox in the pulpit, denouncing motorists, golfers, and all those miserable sinners who happen to own anything. He was certainly not averse to sounding the clarion call of class war, for example, when he dealt with colossal scorn with the game laws and the game preserves maintained by landowners. And in this connection, it might be just worth mentioning something where I was asked to say very, very briefly something about, since it doesn't appear otherwise on the program, namely the views of Labour. Uh, Labour had reservations over aspects of free trade, which uh, uh, was, after all, generating or had been generating higher unemployment and instability. Labour didn't like the um, taxes, as I've said, on tobacco and on beer. However, the budget was undoubtedly very, very popular with the Labour Party. Uh, they even were disposed on occasion to call it the first socialist budget. I certainly don't think it was that, but it was very popular with the Labour Party. It's probably the closest phase of Lib Lab cooperation uh, before the war. It helped, I think, that the chairman of the Labour Party was Arthur Henderson, a former liberal, and he spoke with terms of extreme enthusiasm for the budget. And you get even people as distinctly on the left as Keir Hardy uh, lining up to uh, support the budget. The rest is very well known, the clash with the House of Lords, speeches at uh, Limehouse and Newcastle, uh, very, very powerful pieces of popular oratory, drawing protests from uh, the king, King Edward VII, who said that ministers shouldn't really talk like that about their uh, opponents, and uh, leading to one of these classic confrontations. One of the things that interests me, and not only for this period, is the role of memory and mythology, and the competing narratives you see in terms of historical memory or perhaps myth uh, are um, interesting. Uh, uh, the free traders, of course, using the historical memories uh, alleged of the hungry 40s and the poverty that was said to have existed then. Lloyd George turning very strongly onto the theme of landlord power and its anti-democratic implications. He made a famous speech during the campaign uh, relating to the eviction of tenants by landlords in Wales in 1868 for having voted liberal. It awoke, said Lloyd George, the spirit of the mountains, the genius of freedom that fought the might of the Normans. The political power of landlordism in Wales was shattered as effectively as the power of the Druids. I mention that because I think Lloyd George is a bit unfair to Druids, actually, though I, uh, I declare interest because I actually am a Druid and uh, I think that they might be uh, defended. The long-term impact of the budget, finally, obviously, 
colossal. It was used in a way that budgets hadn't been used before to finance welfare, to finance national development. It was radical. It was redistributive. It introduced and made permanent new principles of public taxation, uh, graduated, differentiated income tax used uh, imaginatively as never before. It was very, very successful. By 1912, Lloyd George could declare a record surplus of 6.5 million pounds. Everything was going fine, uh, founded, uh, interestingly, among other things, on higher public spending and public investment. All future budgets built on this. That really is the end of the story, but I conclude with the great irony. The most contested issue, the one that aroused the most passion in 1909, were of course the land duties. They yielded very little. The most valuable feature of them, Lloyd George came to acknowledge, was the valuation exercise to try to form a clear a statistical base on which taxation should be founded. Landlords were successful in resisting. It was enormously complicated. One of the things that appeared to have suffered was the housing program, and Lloyd George's great lieutenant and ally, Christopher Addison, found this a problem in 1919 when he started the first program of publicly maintained uh, council housing. So in 1920, the budget quietly abolished Lloyd George's land taxes. They were yielding very little. They simply weren't worth the trouble. The Prime Minister in 1920 was, of course, David Lloyd George. As my old mentor, Alan Taylor, used to say, that truly is one of history's curious twists. <laughs>